and she's holding the flyer and I and I'm like, oh my gosh, that looks just like Jacqueline. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. Donald Woodark was the first Midlothian police officer to arrive at the Dwallaby House on September 10th, 1988. Officer Woodark had been employed by the Midlothian Police Department for 16 years and was working as a patrol officer at the time. He had been patrolling the east side of Midlothian when he received a call about a potential break-in and a missing child. When he pulled up on 148th place, David Wallaby opened the front door and told him that he believed that somebody had broken into the home and that his daughter Jacqueline was missing. David then brought the officer outside to show him the broken basement window. On the southeast corner of the tan-bricked house, the basement window was shattered. The wire screen had been pulled back from left to right, and torn, but it was still in the frame. On the ground below the window were shards of glass. There were also pieces of glass still in the window frame. After observing the window, David brought Officer Woodark back into the house and down the stairs to the basement to view the other side of the shattered window. It was dimly lit inside the basement because the curtains were still closed. David then led the officer into Jacqueline's bedroom, which was located directly above the shattered basement window. The blinds were closed, but there was a light left on in the closet. The room was messy, there was clothing on the floor, as well as some poking out of open drawers. The bare bed was pulled out away from the wall from where the frantic parents had searched every place a small child might hide wasn't a game and fear was sinking in. An open suitcase that Jacqueline often played with was sitting on the bed. The comfort was missing and the bed was sheetless. Jacqueline had gone to bed the night before without a sheet because her favourite sheet was still hung up on the line outside after being washed. David informed Officer Woodark that the front door had been open when he woke up at 8am. But at that time, he had presumed that his mother had left it open after she came home from a night out. And at that point, he had no reason to be concerned. As far as he knew, Jacqueline was sleeping soundly in her bed. Jacqueline had opened the front door once before and had gone outside to play, without informing anybody. And after this event, the Dewallabies took the same precautions that any parent would. They had a latch installed and made sure it was bolted each night. Jacqueline had been able to reach the latch using a stool, but that morning there was no stool at the front door. At this stage, Officer Woodark sent out a missing persons report and called for a detective to come to the scene. He then advised the Dwallabies not to enter Jacqueline's bedroom or the basement. Officer Woodark went back outside to the basement window. He examined the shards of glass, looking for evidence which could show what was used to break the window. 
He picked up the shards with his bare hands and examined them for any marks or blood. After picking up the glass, Officer Woodark placed it back down on the ground in the location he had picked it up from. One shard had what looked to be a fingerprint on it. This was placed on the concrete ledge by the window. Officer Woodark then went back inside the basement. Jacqueline's grandmother, Anne, owned the house and slept in the basement, which had been converted into a bedroom. The bedroom was poorly lit, but well lived in. A normal bedroom for someone who wasn't expecting visitors, especially those who have to scrutinise every single aspect. Directly below the window was a metal rack with a basket on the top. The metal rack had not been disturbed. However, there were fragments of broken glass inside the basket, as well as in boxes beneath the rack and scattered on the floor below. Officer Woodark again picked up the glass to examine it, before piling it on the corner of a dresser to the left of the metal rack. He then opened the curtains and examined the window sill. Nothing had been disturbed on the dresser to the left of the metal rack, but there appeared to be stress marks on some boxes to the right, which could have come from someone stepping on them. There was also a scuff mark on the wall about halfway between the narrow window and the basement floor. Jacqueline's biological grandmother, Jackie, arrived on scene at that point and informed the officer of Jimmy Guess's whereabouts, before leaving to see if her other son, Timothy, knew anything about Jacqueline's disappearance. A detective arrived to begin the duty of confirming Jimmy's location, while Officer Woodark remained at the house. Officer Woodark completed his initial report. On a police report, there is an empty box on the bottom of the page for investigators to fill in the method of entry. Officer Woodark wrote broken basement window east side. Numerous times in this report, the basement window was referred to as the entry point. David maintained his composure and answered any questions asked. It was in his nature to help, but Cynthia was struggling to focus on anything other than her little girl. She was so overcome with anxiety that she vomited. Hayden Baldwin, a crime scene technician from the Illinois Bureau of Crime Scene Services, arrived at the Dwallaby house approximately 15 minutes past noon. Officer Woodark informed Baldwin that he had picked the glass up to examine it. Baldwin informed Officer Woodark that this was not correct protocol. Officer Woodark's job was to preserve the crime scene, not contaminate it. Baldwin was then directed to the outside of the house, to the broken window, then the basement and Jacqueline's bedroom before retrieving his equipment from the car. Baldwin proceeded to take a series of photographs of the exterior of the house as far as the window on the southeast corner. The window was found to be unlocked and some glass remained in the frame. Inside the basement, he photographed the area and the inside of the window. He also photographed Jacqueline's bedroom. Baldwin examined the three doorway entry points, the front door, rear door and patio door, and found no signs of forced entry. He did not check for fingerprints at this time. The glass outside was examined and processed for latent prints with black fingerprinting powder. Partial impressions were lifted using tape. 
front door was processed using the same steps, and Baldwin only found smear marks, which are overlapping of fingerprints that were not suitable for lifting. In the basement, no prints were found on the broken pieces of glass, nor were there any hairs or fibres found. The officers didn't check the windowsill for fingerprints or photograph the broken window closely. David, Cynthia, Davy, and Anne provided their fingerprints for comparison. A piece of glass was collected from the window frame for analysis, and at approximately 2pm, Hayden Baldwin went back to the police station to process the evidence collected. Five latent prints, one piece of glass, and around 20 photographs. While Baldwin was conducting his investigation, Jacqueline's bedroom had not been cordoned off like one would expect in a typical crime scene. If it weren't for the officers on scene, one would expect that this was any regular morning in a busy family home. Friends and relatives were walking from room to room. At this point, the police weren't sure if Jacqueline had walked out of the house voluntarily or if she had been taken. Because there was the indication that Jacqueline had been kidnapped, FBI agents were sent to the home. Agent Timothy Ely and Agent Steve Kucherski went to 3636 West 148th Place to investigate. When Agent Ely arrived at the home, he spoke with Anne, Cynthia, David's brother Brian and Cynthia's mother Mary. The FBI set up telephone surveillance in case a ransom call came through or anyone tried to contact the family in relation to Jacqueline's abduction. Over the next while, somebody was assigned to the Dwallaby house on a 24-hour basis to await a ransom call, to give direction at the residence and to add some stability. While the officers considered that Jacqueline may have been taken by a stranger, they would not rule out the possibility that she had been taken by a relative. There was even the possibility that she had ran away from home. However, this was something that her family didn't even entertain the idea of. They knew Jacqueline and knew that she would never run away from home. Nothing in the house was missing other than Jacqueline's blanket, which was floral patterned with a picture of a little blonde girl. There appeared to be no indication of a struggle either. The Dwallaby family told investigators that none of them had heard anything out of the ordinary during the night and that they all slept soundly. With no sign of a struggle, investigators began to question whether Jacqueline had willingly gone with somebody that she knew. If the kidnapper had entered through the broken basement window, then they would have had to have known the layout of the house to get into Jacqueline's bedroom without disturbing any of the other occupants, investigators concluded. As Midlothian Police Captain John Bitton said, we're keeping an open mind on whether it was an actual kidnapping or an abduction involving relatives. Cynthia thought back to the traumatizing event that had taken place years earlier. After a bitter custody battle with her ex-husband Jimmy, he broke into the home and tried to kidnap Jacqueline after losing custody of the newborn. Cynthia immediately suspected that he had something to do with the disappearance. She certainly knew that he was capable and Wallaby spoke about this at the time. And then I became afraid because I knew that her life was in jeopardy. And that's when I started really worrying and being concerned that she something had bad had happened to her. 
After the FBI confirmed Jimmy's location, officers told the family that they found Jacqueline's biological father in Florida. Their momentary relief at the presumption that Jimmy had Jacqueline with him was shattered by the revelation that Jimmy was in prison and had been for months. Jimmy had moved to Florida to work in construction and on the 23rd of May 1988, he was sentenced to seven years in prison for two counts of sexual battery, threatening with a deadly weapon and one count of attempted sexual battery on a woman he had met at a bar. Jimmy was ruled out as a suspect in Jacqueline's disappearance, meaning it had to have been someone else. Rob Warden, journalist and founder of Injustice Watch, said... Uh, initially, uh, Cynthia thought that Jim, her ex-husband, might have might have taken Jacqueline, and uh, you know, and then the police, when she suggested that, the police then checked him out and found out he was in prison, and thought, oh well, she's trying to throw us off, <laughs> you know, the track of what really happened here. So, I mean, she wasn't; she didn't know he was in prison, and uh, it, but it made sense. I mean, often uh, uh, things like this are are domestic. You have a, uh, a, a natural father maybe abducting a child under circumstances like this. The family home suddenly became the headquarters in the search for Jacqueline. What should have been a normal weekend was now a living nightmare for Cynthia and David Dwallaby. They were being bombarded with questions. The later it got, the more distraught Cynthia became. To try and calm their fears, a number of family and friends took to cleaning the Dwallaby home. Hoovers, mops and dusters came out in full force while Cynthia's mother Mary carefully made Jacqueline's bed. Down in the basement, Anne picked up the pieces of shattered glass and discarded them in the bin, fearing that Davy could hurt himself on the shards. She additionally folded Jacqueline's bedsheets and placed them back in the closet where they normally belonged. Chief Fisher of the Midlothian Police requested the State Police's assistance in the investigation and Captain Daniel McDevitt sent three members of the State Police to assist at the home. A search party consisting of local volunteers as well as a US Coast Guard helicopter and police dogs were called in to assist in the search for Jacqueline. They plodded through the nearby nature preserves and trudged up Midlothian Creek, which was located just a couple of blocks from the Dwallaby home. Midlothian Creek flowed from the Calumet Woods down past Yankee Woods into Centennial Park. There was an abundance of wooded areas surrounding the modest home on 3636 148th Street, making the search a taxing one. While no ransom calls or notes have been received by the family, the FBI are routinely involved in any suspected kidnapping. Up to 40 officers from the Illinois State Police, the FBI, and several suburban police departments formed a task force. They parked at each end of the Dwallaby Street and stopped any cars entering or leaving the neighbourhood to ask if they had seen anything suspicious at the time of Jacqueline's disappearance. There would be a 24-hour police and FBI presence in the area while the search for Jacqueline was ongoing. Flyers containing a photograph of Jacqueline along with a description of the four feet tall and 60 pound girl and a description of her missing blanket which was purple and white with floral print and a picture of a little blonde haired girl on a swing were distributed all throughout Cook County, Illinois. 
Um, and I remember actually the, the flyers going out when she was missing before they found her. People were going door to door and I was at my grandmother's house and she lived right next to me. And she's holding the flyer and I, I was looking at, I think they put her full name on it. I think they did uh, Jacqueline Marie. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that looks just like Jacqueline, but it's not her because I was looking at the middle name and my grandma was like, no, it, it is Jacqueline. And I was like, oh my gosh. And just confused. You know, you milk carton pictures <laughs> were such a TV thing, you know, and it, it was a reality to us. After the missing person flyers were distributed, another 15-member search team from the Lothian Crestwood and Oak Forest Police Departments again checked the wooded areas located just east of Kedzie Avenue between 149th and 152nd Street. This area had already been covered by sniffer dogs, but it was deduced that human searchers would be better equipped to be able to search through the dense underbrush. They hoped to find a clue, no matter how small, which could lead them in the direction of Jacqueline. But once again, they found nothing. After this failed search, Captain John Bitten spoke with the media and said there were no indications from neighbours or teachers that Jacqueline had anything but a happy life. News of the potential kidnapping circulated throughout the neighbourhood. The possibility that someone had snuck into the family's home and kidnapped their young daughter in the dead of night as everyone else slept was a terrifying notion, and not only to parents. Was there someone sinister lurking at night? Or were the people responsible the same people that they considered friends and neighbours? How well can you really know your neighbours? People stopped letting their children out to play and they doubled their security. The streets were quiet apart from calls for Jacqueline. Just a few days beforehand, there had been children playing up and down the block. And now, nothing. The Dwallabies were terrified for their son. Cynthia said, All I could do was pace around. Every time the phone rang, we ran to it, hoping it was Jacqueline. We were so fearful for little Davy walking down the street. Davy was only four. He didn't understand why his house was full of people or why his parents were always crying. Why couldn't he play outside anymore? Why didn't anyone want to play with him? Where was Jacqueline? Cynthia didn't leave the house. She sat by the window watching cars pass, writing down license plate numbers, filling page after page, hoping something would lead to Jacqueline. Young students at Central Park who knew Jacqueline confided in their teachers that they were now afraid to fall asleep at night. Principal Joan M. Black said, They're very quiet. They have a lot of questions. One lead early on directed the investigators to a forest preserve at 95th and LaGrange Road. A concerned citizen had called police after spotting some kind of material which they believe could be a sheet or a blanket with a similar design to the one that vanished from the Dwallaby home. Investigators discovered the item, but determined that the sheet was not similar to the one missing with Jacqueline. On Sunday, the 11th of September, the Dwallabies said they would take lie detector tests. They needed to be ruled out as suspects, so the investigation could focus on the idea that Jacqueline was abducted by an intruder. 
David said, I'll do anything they want. I just want Jacqueline to be found. The couple were brought to the precinct downtown. Davy stayed in the house with Anne and the investigators to answer some questions. When they got to the police station, Cynthia broke down. She felt immense guilt that she wasn't at home because Jacqueline was out there somewhere and may have been wondering where her mother was. According to Peter J. Flanagan, the polygraph examiner, Cynthia was far too distraught to take the lie detector test. David was able to take the test. Four questions were asked in regards to Jacqueline's disappearance. Whether he had helped plan the disappearance, whether he caused the disappearance, whether he knew who caused the disappearance, and whether he knew where Jacqueline was. David had answered no to each question, and the test came back that he was telling the truth. They didn't know anything about Jacqueline's disappearance. They just knew that they wanted her home. FBI agents Ely and Kosciuszki, along with other members of the task force, canvassed the area again, as well as searching bus terminals, motels, hotels and hospitals for any sign or clue as to where the seven-year-old girl might have gone. They also attempted to identify recently released sex offenders in the area. No other relatives were questioned about their whereabouts bar Cynthia, David and Anne de Wallaby. A task force was assembled with Captain McDevitt from the State Police in charge, as well as Chief Fisher from Midlothian Police and the FBI. After each briefing at the task force HQ, the investigators would walk out of a door that had Jacqueline's kindergarten photo stuck to it. They were also given a smaller copy each, to remind them who they were doing it for. Just around the corner from the Dwallaby home, a family were moving, They were questioned and had their house searched, as well as their new property in Michigan. An elderly man was also questioned after it emerged that he would sometimes speak to the neighbourhood children and give them fruit. Nothing of note emerged. Cynthia, David, Anne and Davy had their fingerprints taken. After being fingerprinted, four-year-old Davy was asked if he heard anything the night that Jacqueline went missing. He told them that he woke up when he heard glass breaking, but went back to sleep. Then he said that he'd gone downstairs to Anne's bedroom in the basement after hearing the glass and saw a man there. He said he didn't wake his parents up or tell them in case he got into trouble. We just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. At the moment, there's so many of us who are going through difficult times. BetterHelp is a professional counselling service that's available online. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. You can access private sessions with your therapist on a video or phone call. You can also message your therapist at any time that you need to. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and there is financial aid available. You won't have to sit in a waiting room and you aren't limited to the therapist in your area. This means that you can speak with someone who has a specialised experience with the issues you're dealing with. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, so if you require urgent medical help, please contact emergency services. We want you to start living a happier life today. You'll get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com forward slash shattered. Over 1 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp. You can read their testimonials that are posted on their website daily. Try our sponsor BetterHelp at betterhelp.com forward slash shattered. 
On the Monday following Jacqueline's disappearance, a makeshift sign, which read, We're praying for Jacqueline, could be seen on the front door of the Dewallaby household. It had been created by classmates of Jacqueline who had all signed their names in solidarity. Oak trees which lined the street outside were embellished with yellow ribbons as a beacon of hope. The Jacqueline would soon be back home where she belonged. Cynthia and David were brought to the Midlothian police station where they provided blood and urine samples. They were separated and questioned. David waived his right to remain silent or to have an attorney present and again relayed the events of the night the Jacqueline went missing and the morning they noticed that she was gone. Cynthia was questioned in the conference room, but she was too upset to continue answering the same questions. The family did anything they could to speed up the investigation. After all, the police were trying to help them get Jacqueline back. Or so it seemed. David later said, We cooperated with them. We never even thought about hiring an attorney. Even though we knew we were being zeroed in on by the police, we had faith that Jacqueline was coming home and we wanted them to help find her, so we did everything they asked. We put our trust in them. We had faith that the right thing would be done. David's younger brother, Brian, suggested that they contact a psychic his co-worker knew, a lady named Linda Patrine, who had worked on missing person cases before. I didn't believe in psychics, Cynthia said, but we were desperate. We would have done anything that would help. With the police failing to locate any leads, they decided to try alternative methods. They rang the psychic who said she would be there on Monday night. They wanted to know if I could come that night. And I said, well, it's really running late because I'm, they live way, for me, it's over an hour drive. And um, I've got young kids and I have long days because I'm widowed now and I'm a single parent with three children. And... um, They um, said, well, it doesn't matter. We'll be up, you know, if you could just come. And I wound up going with my girlfriend and another friend who drove us. And my girlfriend went with because she said, you sometimes are so full of energy that when you make tapes for people, they static out. Jacqueline had been missing for three days and desperation was setting in. Linda arrived at the prearranged time and was accompanied to the basement by David and Cynthia. Linda recorded the interaction, hoping it may aid the investigators. When she touched the broken glass from the basement window, she began to describe two men. The first man she described was a black youth with medium skin tone. She described the second man as a thin white man, dingy light brown hair that needed to be washed. Light-coloured eyes, blue or green, bad teeth. Linda said that the second man seemed spacey, like he was on drugs. He had very nervous habits. He had a tattoo on his arm, his right arm. It's in blue ink. It's not a very well-done tattoo. When I first went to the house, and I was literally, um, after I went to the through the basement and the window and started seeing the image of the person that I saw. I kept seeing him and the man behind him. And um, the man behind him was more anew. He was somehow connected with the other person and was involved in some way. And then I went up to her room 
And I asked if it would be okay if I sat on her bed. And they said, not a problem. They were both in the room, but they were in and out because there was, uh, people were running to say, there's a phone call that's important. Somebody has to answer it. There's, this is going on. Uh, the search team needs to know this. They want to know something about the phones. So Cynthia would be running in and out a couple times, David. And at first they just didn't say anything. I held one of her Barbies and I sat on her bed and I just started waiting. And when the images started, I realized she knew the killer. I felt that she was not afraid and that she was, that's why there was no noise. She didn't scream out. You know, the person was, oh, I'm going to take you. We're going, we're going, we're going. It's, and, and she was fine. There was no fear. So it was somebody that she knew well, not to be afraid of, that she wasn't startled that it was middle of the night. He was taking her because she thought she was going to where she it would be okay. I, I didn't see her screaming out or crying or yelling or anything. And she was sleepy and, and he left. Then I started describing him, you know, what I saw with his hair color and height, different things about him. And I felt that there was a connection, like I said, you know, of somebody that the family knew or her relative, somebody close because of the way was going on with her and what I felt about her. And uh, the vision, as far as my end of it, ended with the description when I, when Cynthia did come up back to the room and I was talking and David asked me to ask, tell her about the description I had, she immediately came up with Tim Guest saying that there's a family member that fits this description. And he was saying yes too. And I said, well, good, I said, because, you know, definitely I would tell, let the police know. I don't know if they're gonna listen. She went to Jacqueline's bedroom and continued to express her feelings on tape as she walked through the house. David can be heard saying, All I ask is that you just try think of how we can get her back. While alone with David in Jacqueline's bedroom, the psychic said, I feel I have to tell you that your daughter has been strangled. David asked her to stop, saying, No, I know we are going to find her. I know she was going to be all right. Linda Petrine then told David that Jacqueline would be found strangled in a field with overgrown weeds in front of woods near a large building, close to two streams of water that crossed each other. She drew a picture of the site where she felt Jacqueline's body would be found. I went from that to finally, now I'm starting to get stuff about the murder scene uh, and I started drawing and finally when Cynthia was not in the room because she was a basket and she was so exhausted and she was fighting back tears and and I knew if I told her at the time that I feel she's from the time I got the call that she's they're going to find her strangled and she's already there's no life force in her she's already gone it would be it, she couldn't handle it it would probably push her into a complete collapse or like, I was even worried like it could lead her to a breakdown. I mean, because this would be a shock. And to take that hope away, it was not the right timing. She needed to, it would be okay, but not that way. 
So I told this to David and I said, at this point, she is so distraught, so exhausted that I feel that she is going to be found. And I gave him, I, he, he actually sat by me. I showed him the, the, what I drew and I just him, I'll leave this with you and the tape, which had all kinds of information on it. And I had a lot about very descriptive about the murder site from the trees being in full bloom and there were a couple big trees the leaves were all green which indicated warm weather the the grass was high like to the knee it would be if you went in it would be about knee knee high and that she was in the grass and then I saw the water behind her and then to the right I saw these giant garbage cans that belonged to this big uh, storied apartment building that was to the right of of the vision and I felt in this empty area of where it was all wild grass and stuff that's where her body would be that she would be covered with the blanket and that the rope would be around her neck. David couldn't cope with the psychic's words and he knew that Cynthia wouldn't be able to deal with it so he thought he'd keep it to himself. When the psychic was leaving she asked Cynthia to give her something Jacqueline had written and an item of clothing belonging to Jacqueline. I said, if you have a piece of her clothing that hasn't been washed yet, yes, there's some wash I haven't gone through, it's something small that you don't want back. Well, she chose a pair of her underpants because it was small. She put it, I guess, in a little bag or whatever and put it in her purse because I live way north, she lives way south. The police refused to... Um, <coughs> let me um, talk to the officer at the house and they, they refused any, they didn't want anything to do with psychics. Days were passing and nothing had changed. Same things were being asked over and over again. The police were becoming increasingly audacious in their questioning. On Tuesday, the fourth day of the search, investigators retraced their steps. But Midlothian police captain, John Bitten, said that they came up a big zero. At midnight the night before, the FBI presence was reduced after no ransom calls had been received. Despite there being no direct evidence of an abduction, the FBI were still treating Jacqueline's disappearance as a kidnapping. 148th place was filled with yellow ribbons and blue uniforms. In Baldwin, the crime scene technician returned to the house to collect the window as evidence. It had been three days, so most of the glass had been cleaned up, to stop anyone being accidentally cut. Baldwin collected the broken window frame, the glass from inside it, and the glass he could recover from a paper trash bag in the basement bedroom. The apparent shoe mark under the window on the interior wall was ignored. Baldwin had told Captain McDevitt that judging by the large pieces of glass found on the exterior side of the window... He believed that it had been broken from the inside. He brought the window to the state crime lab for testing, but reconstructing a shattered window takes time. Some things can never be repaired. Jackie Guess, Jacqueline's biological grandmother, said, Everyone's heart is broken. No one can imagine who would do such a thing. Please God, bring her back home. The family were advised not to speak to the media, but they felt they should make a plea to the public for assistance in finding Jacqueline. 
David's twin sister, Rose, was the one to face the hordes of journalists. She read from a short, pre-written statement, thanking the volunteers for their support and asking them to continue searching and praying for Jacqueline. Instead of broadcasting, instead of broadcasting this message, Rose was caught off guard by questions and reports said she seemed just as puzzled as the investigators. This made the Dwallabies look bad and they agreed not to speak to the press again. Cynthia's best friend Peggy said this shortly after. They were being advised by the police and the FBI not to talk to them. You're not going to go against what the police are telling you to do, what the FBI are suggesting that you do? Captain Bitten, however, had no issue speaking with journalists. He seemed frustrated that nothing of note had been found in the search, telling reporters that nothing was missing from the house bar Jacqueline and her blanket. He said there were no signs of an intruder and that police could not confirm that the broken basement window had been used as an entry point. He said that Jacqueline's parents heard nothing as they slept across the hall from her bedroom, and neither had her little brother Davy. The following morning, Wednesday 14th of September, Jacqueline's grandmothers, Anne and Mary, decided to paint Jacqueline's room. A show of optimism that the little girl would be back to appreciate it soon. Meanwhile, David and Cynthia were asked to provide another set of fingerprints and to take another lie detector test. David was told it was because the state wanted to use their own tests and they agreed to go to the station. David's mother, Anne, had advised him to get a lawyer. She was worried that he was being repeatedly questioned, but David assured her that if he didn't go, they would just think he was guilty. David and Cynthia went to the station voluntarily on the condition that they could stay together. In the days since their daughter vanished, they had been constantly questioned and monitored. Cynthia was reaching an emotional breaking point and wanted David to be by her side. Each evening when the house was quiet, they would sit together, going over the night Jacqueline went missing in their heads. Did they leave a door unlocked? Why didn't they wake up? At the station, they were polygraphed again, this time by a state polygraph examiner. Thomas Walsh carried out the exam. The questions were just as before. Did they know where Jacqueline was? Did they do anything to cause her disappearance? Did they harm her on Friday night or Saturday morning? Did they break the basement window? Cynthia was in no state to answer. She was barely able to speak. Her test was marked as inconclusive as a result. Walsh concluded that David was not telling the truth and said that he believed this due to the subject's non-cooperation during parts of his polygraph examination. David spoke about this. He said, As we began, Walsh asked me to answer a series of questions untruthfully so that he could see how the lies registered on the polygraph. I agreed to do that and I had no problem denying that my name was David DeWallaby or that I lived in Midlothian. But then he asked me if I killed my daughter. I couldn't just answer yes to that question. Walsh became very upset with me. If that's what he considered uncooperative, then I was definitely uncooperative. David's earlier polygraph results indicated that he was being truthful. Captain McDivitt speculated that it was because he was high on drugs at the time. His blood test proved that he was not, but it was still noted in the FBI reports. While David was having his fingerprints taken again, Cynthia was invited to step away and get a drink. 
They told her David would be a little longer and asked her to go for a drive with them while they waited. Cynthia agreed, hoping to use the opportunity to look for Jacqueline. The officers assured her it would just be a short drive, but instead they seized the chance to ask Cynthia questions over and over again. She wasn't brought home until the middle of the day. David was still at the station. Outside their home, FBI agent Timothy Ely spoke about his faith. He was a fundamentalist Christian and told Cynthia that he believed David knew something that he wasn't telling them. He said, Accidents happen and we think David may know something about that. Cynthia didn't believe that. David loved his kids and he was an incredible father. There was no way he would hurt them. Cynthia was home the entire time David was. She would know if he knew anything. Agent Ely said, God always forgives. At the same time, David was in the police station being questioned again. The interrogation became increasingly hostile. The investigators persistently accused David of withholding information. He was sure he told them everything, but as the hours went on, he began to second-guess himself. As he said in an interview later, It was hard answering their questions because telling the police that you woke up around eight isn't good enough. They wanted us to get it as close as possible. And so we were forced to try to get really close to times when really all that was on our mind was Jacqueline. He wasn't sure if he actually kissed his daughter goodnight on Friday night. She was reading the wish book in bed and told him not to come in because he would see the gifts she had circled. He couldn't remember if he went in anyway. The detectives accused David of harming Jacqueline or causing her disappearance. He was questioned for hours by himself because they hadn't felt the need to consult a lawyer. David thought the police were just trying to narrow down the search. He hadn't realised they already had. It became evident that they were trying to break him down. They advised him of his right to remain silent and his right to an attorney, but he waived these rights and continued to answer their questions. For over five hours he was worn down. At one stage he burst into tears before regaining his composure. They told him that Cynthia thought he had something to do with Jacqueline's disappearance and that all of his family believed he was involved. You see often in these cases that uh, two people are arrested, um, maybe their friends, so they'll separate them from interrogation and then they'll come tell one. All the other guys told us all about it and mailed uh, it and it's blaming you and unless, uh, unless you have a story to tell, unless you have a chance to tell it, uh, it looks like you're going to take the rap. Uh, well, that, that those kinds of techniques often uh, produce, uh, uh, you know, unreliable uh, confessions. Uh, those kinds of things ought to be banned. Uh, you know, in in, um, in Great Britain, the police are not allowed, allowed to lie to suspects during interrogation. In the United States, they are allowed to lie, uh, and uh, uh, that ought to be changed, uh, but it has not been changed. When the detectives told him that Jacqueline had been found, he brushed it off as another tactic to try and get him to break down. Momentarily breaking his poise to ask if she had been found in a field and if she was alive, remembering what the psychic had said. When the officers answered that she was dead, he refused to believe them. You're lying to me just to get me to confess. I guess you guys think I should cry now, he said defiantly. 
Back at home, Cynthia was finished answering questions and hearing accusations about her husband. In another section of the house, there were other FBI agents speaking with Cynthia's mother, Mary. Moments later, a number of phone calls came in quick succession to one of the FBI officers. After speaking on the phone for several minutes, one FBI agent asked Mary to step outside for one moment, to which she complied. Standing outside in the brisk evening air, the FBI agent informed Mary that Jacqueline had been found dead. We're sorry, who should tell Cindy? he questioned. Mary felt as though it was her duty as a mother to tell her daughter the grim news. When Mary and the FBI agent walked back inside, Cynthia was standing in the living room. Mary faced her daughter and tearfully said, Cindy, they found Jacqueline. Cynthia cried, Where is she? Mary answered that Jacqueline was dead. Cynthia's legs went from underneath her and she was caught by Agent Ely, who helped Mary carry her to the couch. Cynthia was inconsolable. She asked who could do it and called for David, who was still at the police station, unaware that his daughter was actually dead. Anne couldn't believe that they had told Cynthia about Jacqueline while David wasn't there. How could they deliver that news to Jacqueline's parents separately? She tried to get David out of the police station and was advised to call a lawyer. A neighbour recommended Ralph Metchik, and Anne was speaking with him when the police dropped David home. David had thought that the police were trying to trick him into believing that Jacqueline was dead, until he walked into the house and saw Cynthia, inconsolable, on the couch. He fell to his knees at her feet. David held Cynthia in his arms and apologised that he wasn't with her when the news was delivered. Their hearts were shattered into a million pieces. David's mother was furious that the police who were supposed to be supporting the family had kept David from Cynthia while they learned that their daughter was dead. She told the FBI agents to leave. How could they trust the police when they were willing to put a grieving family through even more pain? The Dwallabies never spoke to the investigators without their lawyers present again. The unified search for Jacqueline had fragmented. The relationship with the police would never be repaired. And Jacqueline was never coming home. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch, and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also, make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode, and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoyed The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and have an amazing week.